This podcast is a Tucker Media production. For more information, head to tuckermedia.com.au. Welcome to the Change Room Podcast, a whiff of well-being with Minnie and Matt. I tell you what, Minnie, I know you're just chomping at the bit for today's podcast because the guest that we've got on today is right up your alley. She is, Maddie. Uh, mate, it's a real thrill for me to organise Diana Rogers. She's a real food dietitian, organic farmer, heavily into regenerative farming, which I love, author, podcaster, filmmaker. She's done it all. Mate, she sure has many. I tell you what, listeners, I can suggest that you get a notebook out because some of the stuff that we got shared during this episode was just simply incredible. Okay, let's do it, Maddie. Let's give Diana Rogers a whiff of well-being as she steps into the change room. Well, Maddie, today on the Change Room podcast, we have an international guest, Diana Rogers. I'm really excited about this one. Uh, Diana is a registered dietitian with a clinical practice helping people recover through real food, which is which I love. Uh, her blog and podcast, Sustainable Dish, started as a healthy and locally sourced recipe site, but has grown into a much deeper dive into the food systems, which is fantastic to dive into. She spent the last 18 years working on an organic farm which grows vegetables and raises pasture-based meat. Fantastic. And her new book with Rob Wolf, which uh, I've been following Rob for a long time as well, is called The Sacred Cow and The Sacred Cow Movie coming out later this year, which I'm excited about. Diana, welcome to the Change Room Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Let's jump into our first question, which we always ask our uh, our guests. What is the one thing that you have done today to boost your health and personal state? Can I say two things? Of course, yeah. You can say <laughs> as many as you like. <laughs> I went for a big walk, even though it was rainy and yep. it was beautiful. And it just really, I walk every single day um, and just connecting with nature and just being outside mm. in the light every single morning is just so important for me. Um, and then I drank uh, a big pot of heavily salted chicken broth all morning. So two things. Ah, yeah. Yum. Yeah. Love that. Uh, so you live just outside of Boston. Tell us about your organic farm. Um, we run a CSA program, which is community supported agriculture. So I don't know if they probably have something similar to that in Australia, but um, yeah. it's where we have members of the farm. So people commit to buying whatever their share is for mm-hmm. the whole rest of the summer. So they pay up front. And we have members that do that. We have members that commit to eggs. We have members that commit to a certain, you know, a quarter of a sheep, things like that. There's lamb, pigs, uh, chickens for eggs, um, a few goats, but they're really, people around here don't eat goat meat very much, um, uh, although it tastes a lot like I, lamb. I actually uh, love it, slow cooking it, yeah. Yeah, but people should eat more of it, um, mm. but it's um, just not as popular. Even lamb is not very popular in the U.S. at all. Wow. But uh, but they, I, I think it's the best tasting of the red meats, personally, mm. and um, so the goats are hysterical. Uh, they have a lot of personality. <laughs> uh, they escape a lot. And it's just a really great way to raise children. I, I grew up on a farm myself, so we had our own cows and chickens and eggs and all that. So it's a, it's a great way to sort of grow up and have a really strong foundation uh, from the beginning, which is which is mm-hmm. great, isn't it? I thought they called you the goat because you were the greatest well, you of know all what? time, but I think Diana's description <laughs> is far more accurate. It is, yeah. Cause <laughs> my, my heritage is Italian, so slow-cooking goat is certainly in, in our culture, so I've had that many a times, which I love. 
Diana, one, one of the like you've got three real key areas that that you focus on is you know, ethical farming and sustainable um, farming, then had the impacts on the uh, environment and also the the dietary side of things. And we could certainly go down those three paths, but we'd probably be here <laughs> for the next twenty four hours. Um, so what I thought I might do is get you to lean back on, I guess, your academic background and where this all started for, for you is in the nutritional side of things. And it, it's such a confusing topic. And we've got people tuning in now looking at this who want to elevate their health and the way that they live their life. But it's so confusing. Should they be a vegan? Should they be a vegetarian? Should they do the carnivore diet? Should they do paleo? And it, you just start scratching your head. So mm. what, are, what are your key foundations uh, in, in your approach to diet? Um, so we do in the back of the book lay out what an ideal um, most nutrient dense diet is. And so when you remove emotion from the equation and just look at the data and look at which foods are most bioavailable on top of which foods list, you know, like, uh, for example, sweet potatoes say they have vitamin A, you know, when you look on the mm. database, but it's really beta carotene, which is the precursor to vitamin A. And almost half of adults can't make that conversion very easily from beta carotene to active vitamin A. And so though all those things need to be taken into consideration. And mm. so when you're, tr- when you're looking at what is the optimal diet for humans, it is very clear that it contains a large amount of animal sourced foods, uh, mm. protein and fat. In addition, I, I think there's lots of items from the plant kingdom that are also really healthy to eat berries. And, um, you know, just when looking at the straight nutrient density, asparagus, spinach, uh, broccoli, and, you know, just brightly colored, mostly leafy things. And I think everyone has a different ratio of what's ideal for them. Um, so some people might not be able to digest plants as easily as other people for a variety of reasons. Um, certain people might need a little more protein than others and certainly different stages of your life. You have higher protein requirements, um, but I'm a huge protein advocate. And, uh, and I think people in general don't eat enough protein. And so when you pull in animal source protein, the great thing is it's the most bioavailable protein you can be eating. So we absorb Mm. the most nutrients, you know, um, we, we pull the most protein from animal source protein, but it's also highly satiating. So you're going to be less hungry later. It's very low in calories compared to plant source proteins. And it's the highest nutrient value. So, so you've got much more nutrients per calorie in animal source foods than in plant source foods. I love the way that you said that there's a balance between each and it, it seems to vary from person to person. That would be what I took from what you said there mm-hmm. as well. How, how do we find that balance ourselves? What, what's the way to, to work out whether I should take some more protein or increase my fat intake or how, how, do, how do I work that out? Um, that can be a little bit hard, um, especially when you're talking about fat, because um, the, the genetics play a huge role in how sensitive your body is to fat and saturated fat, right? If you have certain genes, fat can be deadly, <laughs> right? And so, uh, so genetics play a role. I think your microbiome health plays a role in all of this, your age, your general health status, how much stress you have going on in your life. There's so many things that contribute to that. But generally what I like to see is, you know, about 20, 25% of calories from animal source 
meat, uh, protein. And so that ends up looking about twice uh, what the US RDA is for protein. So I usually start women at about 100 grams of protein per day in my practice, which is not 100 grams of weight. Uh, like your listeners might be thinking that's, yeah. you know, to, to weigh 100 grams, that's 100 grams of protein. We use ounces here, but so I don't mm. know how to uh, translate that. But yeah, you have an equation in your book about I think 100 grams of meat equals only 27 grams of protein, or something in the book. That do you have that? That sounds about yeah. right. Actually, yeah. 100 grams. Um, but yeah, because that would 100 grams would be about about uh, five ounces. Yeah, is that correct? Yeah. Is that, yeah? Yep. Um, yeah. So anyway, it's a lot more meat than what people yeah. are used to eating. Yeah. Um, you know, some, a lot of people don't even have any protein with breakfast if they're eating just, you know, That's cereal <laughs> or, or, you know, a little granola or a bar or mm. some, or, or a, it's a lot of people will have a smoothie, but they don't really add much in the way of protein powder to that. And, um, so, and eggs actually are surprisingly low in protein. Uh, there's only six grams of protein per egg. Mm. And so that's, that's a shocker to a lot of people. So when I advise, you know, try to get maybe 30 grams of protein with your breakfast, that's a lot of eggs. <laughs> that's five eggs. Yeah, yeah. Um, but then if you're also trying to keep your calories within check, you know, it can be, it can be difficult to do that, especially if you're avoiding animal source food. So, mm. um, you can get 30 grams of protein from, a small piece of fish or beef, um, or chicken, but you would need cups and cups of beans and rice or, yeah. uh, you know, something like that from a plant, um, to get that same protein. And it would end up being a lot more calories. You said that you started your day with some chicken broth. What, what's my protein and caloric intake from a, a good, you know, a nice bit of uh, chicken broth or bone broth? Not much. Um, I, I would, I sip on it throughout the day, but my actual breakfast was, um, eggs and ham actually. Yep. And so I just kind of sip on chicken broth, like, a like it's coffee or tea just throughout the day. I just kind of drink it. Um, and then my lunch today, oh, um, a can of, of tuna with a little bit of, just a little salad with it. Um, like some, yep. some parsley and some vegetables. What about some of the, the studies that say that red meat pushes up IGF-1 and obviously we need IGF-1 as as kids and we're growing, building healthy brains and bodies. But as we're older, some people say that we don't need as, as much as IGF-1. What happens when we eat red meat? It raises it, it ages us. What What's your and, opinion on and that? Tour, oh my yeah. gosh, oh, and yeah. all these things, right? Yeah. Um, so the problem with, you know, looking at individual reductionist, uh, you know, individual compounds, mm. uh, you're not looking at the whole picture. And so the biggest concern I have with people who are getting older is lack of muscle tone. Mm. Um, and when, and your protein requirements actually go up, uh, starting at about 40 yeah, because that. you're just starting to lose money. You're like, I'm mm. on the downhill already. Um, and so, and so the most important thing, uh, you know, we, we have to, we're, I'm concerned about longevity, but I'm also concerned about quality of life. And I think that having strength is incredibly important if you want to live a healthy long life. And so mm. we need people to be eating protein and yes, like fasting occasionally seems to have some health benefits. Um, most cultures and yep. religions have that built in. 
And there's probably good reason for that. But uh, I mean, we've seen throughout history that, you know, hunter gatherers, um, the ones who did make it past, you know, childhood infant mortality Mm. actually lived quite long lives, very healthy lives. There was a wide range of, of macronutrients, but, but their protein intake was relatively high. Movies recently uh, come out and, you know, vilifying meat and, you know, plant-based diet. And I, 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 Certainly, I have a mix of both, and I certainly didn't like the way they started vilifying red meat. What What was your take on that? When that all all that come out now, all the plant based um, production and and so forth. Um, well, actually, I made the film halfway through writing the book because I was writing the book and yet another vegan film yeah. had come out um, yeah. uh, attacking health. I yeah. don't even love saying the name, right? Because then people are going to go out I know, and that's it. right. Yeah, same. So, <laughs> so I don't say the name. Um, but I realized just how effective they are mm. at swaying people. They're so convincing. And even before I learned much about nutrition, I actually went back for my graduate degree after I had kids. So like later in my life. Before that, I would be very confused too. I would read a book on juice fasting and mm. or juicing and I'd be like, oh, that sounds so perfect. And then I'd read a book on raw veganism and that sounds good too. And it's, you know, people are very convincing. And if you don't have a really firm education in yeah. um, especially looking at evolutionary biology and like uh, anthropology and, yeah. you know, questioning things and knowing how to um, decode scientific papers. If you don't have all that, then there's lots of things that can sound convincing. And those films are really, really powerful. Um, and so that's why I decided to make the film version of the book, because I knew that the book would only reach the true believers that really want this information, but there needed to be a, a film to be shown in schools when they're showing, I mean, at my son's high school, they show, these films in science class and the science teacher is telling the kids to eat these fake burger products Mm. because it's the right thing to do for the environment. Mm. And, um, and actually my son has an Apple watch and the day the teacher did that, he hit record and stood up and, basically just gave her a whole dissertation of my work. Awesome. And I was so proud of him. <laughs> Good. <laughs> I didn't know that he actually like really believed it and was listening all these times. Yeah, yeah, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so I, uh, I feel like the film will reach a lot more young people. Um, we actually, the narrator of the film is a guy, Nick Offerman, who's kind of a famous celebrity here in the U.S. with younger people. He's on a show called Parks and Rec. Um, and his character is, uh, somebody who loves meat too, but it, it personally, he's, he's a huge believer in the type of agriculture that, that I endorse in the film. Mm. Uh, and so the film is very different from the book where the book is very scientific and logic and yeah. well-cited. And, um, although we tried to break it up and make it a little, mm. you know, funny or goofy <laughs> and, and there's some, you know, nice visuals in there to, to help people understand things a little bit better. There's some nice charts. Uh, the film actually is more stories of producers. And so it's, you know, I'm taking people to farms to see Mm. the changes that have been made. And it's really, really powerful when you see, especially my favorite shoot was in Mexico. We went to Northern Mexico in the Chihuahuan desert where uh, we're driving for three hours to get to this ranch we filmed at. 
it's just barren, uh, just, mm. just sand and like some scrubby little bushes and sand, but it used to be a massive grassland with bison and it, all kinds of ruminant animals everywhere and grass taller than a human. Mm. And just over the years, you know, it, it turned into this degraded landscape and this one rancher is, uh, he's working with a collective of ranchers that are, are restoring over a million acres of, uh, desert back into these grasslands just with cattle. And, uh, so when they're managed well and, and moved around a lot, mm. and we kind of talk about that practice a little bit in the film, a lot in the film, you can see the magic that happens, uh, yeah. and the, just the transformation that can happen to the landscapes when you have properly managed uh, grazing animals on it. And, um, and Australia is just the perfect landscape mm-hmm. for so much of that good grazing to happen. Yeah. But I just like over there, we are turning soil into dirt and mm. you know, there's some process. And I'd like you to elaborate a little bit more on yeah. that because we are talking about, you know, the, the benefits of meat, but I guess what we've also got to add into that, and this is what I love about your approach is, you know, the source of that meat and where it comes from, because there are some meats, the same beast, but one part, one meat is not good for you because of the way it's raised and the source of it, and the other one is. It, and I know that that's what I love about your approach. It emerges these three things: that sustainable farming, along with the you know the ethical side of things, along with the nutritional the benefit. Mm. Yeah. So I'd love you to articulate that for us. Yes. And a lot of people that um, are opposed to meat love to start with the ethics, right? It's wrong. It's bad. Meat is murder. But I don't feel like we can have a very intelligent ethical debate about meat without understanding the contribution that uh, grazing animals can have to Mm. landscapes and what happens when you have no animals in a food system. But then also nutritionally, the contribution that animal source foods make to our food system, because um, if we didn't have animal source foods, there's a lot of people that um, don't have the privilege to um, go to a CVS or a pharmacy or, you know, uh, any kind of pharmacy to get their B12 supplements and their iron supplements, right? There's many places in the world Mm. where that's just not an option for these people. And grazing animals are the only thing that might thrive in that area. Um, There's also a lot of places where women can't own land, but they can own livestock. And it's a very important commodity for them. It's, you know, they might uh, trade a goat if somebody's sick in order to get the money to pay the medical bills or something like that. And so um, to demand that the world eat less meat, I think from an ethical point of view is actually quite dangerous um, when we're looking at malnutrition and even the livelihood of, of small scale farmers um, and, you know, all these people that are living in poverty that depend on livestock. So, so as far as the nutrition goes, meat period is a nutrient dense food. It's what we're eating it with. That's, that's, Mm. uh, the bigger Mm -hmm. concern for me. So it's not the burger so much as like the, the, the bun, the sauce, the fries, the soda, all of those things that, that come along with it. And, uh, and then when we look at, you know, better meat raised in a more environmental way, there are small health benefits, but they're not dramatic when we're talking about grass fed beef versus uh, beef that is finished on a feedlot. Honestly, it's, it's just not a a massive health difference as far as human health Mm. goes. There are massive environmental differences and and big ethical differences in, in that. But I, I just caution like a doctor would never say only eat organic vegetables or don't eat vegetables. Right. Um, 
Um, and I, the same thing as a, as a clinician, I, I just, I'm careful to, um, like if there's a mom working two or three jobs and she's got little kids, please go to the store and buy the Mm. best meat you can afford, but, but buy meat, don't buy, you know, like it's not going to be better for your children to avoid meat just because you can't get grass fed meat. So I just try to have a little nuance with that too. Yeah. I love that point. Good tip. Yeah. yeah, Good tip. Uh, Let's go into the environmental side for a little bit. I've got a mate here who's really conscious about his health and he's stopped eating meat a bit last year. And I asked him the question, why? And he goes, I know that red meat has nutritional benefits, but I'm doing it because of carbon emissions. And I was like, you haven't looked at the, the, the bigger picture. You know, if you if you look at, let's look at transport industry, big monocrops, all that type of stuff creates more carbon in the air. Uh, t- tell us about the life cycle and the ecosystem of a regenerative farm, how it can be, that can sequester carbon out of the air. Can, can you just break yes. that down for us? So when we're looking at uh, cow farts, it's actually not farts. They're, it's the belching from yeah. cattle. It's their burps that actually are um, emit methane. But that's actually part of a cycle. Mm. It's not adding new methane to the atmosphere. Um, we don't have more grazing animals uh, than we did before uh, in North America, before we get, got yeah, rid of all the bison less. and the deer yeah. and everything. It's yeah. the same amount. Uh, so it's the same amount of circulating methane. It's just coming from cattle now. Uh, when they belch out the methane, it actually is in the atmosphere for about 10 years. But then after 10 years, it breaks down into hydrogen and water, uh, H2O, which is part of the water cycle, like rain, and then CO2, carbon dioxide, which plants take up in photosynthesis. And they release the oxygen that we breathe in. And then some of that carbon turns into grass. The Some of that carbon also then gets leaked down through the roots and feeds the microbes in the soil, mm. which then give the plant what it needs. So they're actually, there's, um, there's bacteria and then there's fungal networks in the soil that mm. are exchanging nutrients to the plant in exchange for, for the sugars, the carbon that the plant is dripping to it. So it's a symbiotic relationship. It's really, really cool. Mm. And um, up to about 40% of that carbon can actually be locked into the soil, turns into soil and, and stays there and isn't released until something like tilling happens and we're plowing when you when you plow land you're actually releasing tons and tons of carbon so ironically it's the plant-based uh protein supplements that are that are have really really high emissions that we want we want that carbon locked in the soil not to be exposed through plowing and so anyway that's a that's a complete life cycle of that greenhouse gas compared to fossil fuels, which are a one-way road because they are taking carbon that's stored deep in the earth's core and and methane and pumping it up and uh, exposing it to the atmosphere, bringing in new greenhouse gases. Um, When you look at the contribution that cattle make, even not taking into account the the cycle of it, right? Just the overall contribution, it's about 5%. um, All livestock is about 5% emissions um, globally compared to the just transportation industry is 14%. That's what I I don't understand when we do rotational grazing and you just talked about the carbon uh, offset why isn't government putting policies in to actually say this is the way farming has to be? I don't know. I don't know. In, in Australia, we only have 
12, 12% of our farms are grass-fed, grass-finished beef. Uh, it's only That's 12, a lot, actually, that, that is a lot compared to, to America, which is only like 1% or 2%, I think. Yeah, it's so small here. Um, but even we that, actually get a lot of grass-fed beef from Australia, though. Yeah, here. but even yeah. that is small as well, really. Right, um, right. Why, why isn't government stepping in knowing all this knowledge and saying this is the way we should be farming to regenerate our soil? Yeah, I mean, in the U.S., we actually have this one program that pays farmers to not utilize their land, not graze it. It's called the CRP program. And so I went through the math and looked at, you know, what if we converted that to grazing? What if we turned, you know, the cattle out on harvested cornfields and allowed them to to eat just the the crop residue that's in the fields? It's a great thing that cattle and sheep and goats can do that that pigs and chickens really can't do that because they're monogastric. So they're competing directly with us for, for food where cattle um, can actually eat a lot of things that we can't eat and yep. turn it upcycle it into protein, which is really special about ruminants and why even in typical agriculture, I think cattle um, are a better choice than chicken or, or pigs. But then if we, if we did regenerative type grazing where we're intensively grazing them, but then moving them mm. off uh, and giving the land a rest and, and moving them the way that herding animals yeah. naturally move mm. in nature, the productivity of the land actually goes way up too. So you're able to stock more cattle on that same piece of land because you're, you're improving the quality of the pasture so much more by managing it better. Mm. So, so we so we have the land in the U.S. to be grass finishing beef. So it's yeah. it's really an awareness problem. I think there's a lot of interest. Uh, there's a lot of money to be made in mm. plant based proteins. Everyone's getting into it. I mean, Bill and Melinda Gates are getting into it mm. and funding research that makes it look like vegetarian diets are healthier. There was just a study that came out of India that the Gates Foundation funded, yeah. um, trying to make it look like vegetarian pregnant women um, are actually healthier than the ones that ate meat, but that's not true. That, yeah, that's, um, that's what people don't understand with certain studies that who's behind it, who's funding it, um, mm-hmm. you know, is it epidemiology, are they taking just questionnaires or is it meta-analyses, all that type of stuff that people don't understand yeah. about studies, which is mm-hmm. important when you dive into this. Yeah. Um, so I'm actually, um, in addition to just releasing the film and, you know, getting it out there to the public and trying to get it into school. So at least there's a talking, a counter talking mm. point to the the vegan films. Um, I'm actually working on what you call an impact campaign. So it's basically a campaign that um, allows me to then go after politicians, try to get the film in front of them. Mm. Um, so it's sort of like a, an additional piece of activism that I'm, that I'm raising money to, to extend the message of the film and try to impact policymakers. So, um, our vice presidential candidate for the democratic party here, um, Camilla Harris, uh, is talking about, you know, ending animal agriculture or something. And, you know, I'd love to just have 10 minutes with her. So that's the kind of thing is I, I, you know, I want to get to more universities. I mean, there's just a big need for people to think differently about mm. agriculture and know that this isn't some fantasy, that this is something that really works. And there's a um, growing body of science behind it, proving that when managed well, cattle can sequester carbon and improve mm. entire ecosystem function. I think Chris Cresso was saying, if we continue farming this way in America, there's only like 60 years left of farming because of the soil. 
is not getting mm-hmm. regenerated. Is, is that correct? Uh, that's a good question. So um, I had been saying that quote too. Um, yeah. And it was, it comes from an article that was published in, I believe the Atlantic where somebody overheard a woman from the FAO at a conference say that, but Mm. she had no like data to back. It was just like an off comment that she made. So, um, so I actually, I, I contacted the FAO and they were like, "Mm, this isn't the official position of the United Mm. Nations, regardless of what the actual number is, it's not a sustainable system. Mm. And so whether it's 60 years or 65 Mm. or 20 or a hundred, it's still not something that's going to be around for very much longer. It totally depletes the soil, the the way we're farming now. Mm. And we have to have a regenerative system. So it's, it's, it's the only system that's going to bring us forward. And so it's just a matter of, do we choose it now or do we get to a point where it chooses us? Right. (laughs) You stole my question. Oh, sorry. (laughs) (laughs) I I guess just to to take us off in a different direction. And I I had a look at a little bit of your bio, Diana, and you had a Crohn's disease. I think that's right. Celiac. Celiac. Sorry. So that's, Mm an autoimmune disease, and Anthony's got a, a pretty amazing story about how he rehydrated his discs through diet, and in uh, 2011 I met Anthony and I had an autoimmune disease, a type of rheumatitis, and he in- introduced me to the Western A. Price way of diet, and that's something I used to have. It's not something I have anymore. And we run the program, and Anthony, a lot of what Anthony delivers, we've seen type 2 diabetes reversed, and we have all these amazing stories, literally thousands of mm. them. It's pretty mm-hmm. astonishing. I'd like from a, a dietitian side of things, though, to explain to me what is going on in my body just because of the way I eat and what I've changed. You know, I know that you're going to talk about the gut, but what's going on in my body to allow that healing? That's a good question. And, um, I think some of it, we don't know the answers to, but some of it, we, we can't, we do know a little bit. And, um, it's very unfortunate that there aren't many other dietitians that you would get to talk about this because this isn't something that that is taught in American and certainly not Australian dietetics programs because of the bias uh, that's going on in those programs and the bias towards plant-based diets, honestly, um, in those programs. Uh, so, you know, we don't know what triggers, for example, celiac disease to turn on. So I, I have the gene, um, that makes me susceptible to it. My kids do too, but it got turned on in me and it could be, you know, some people think it's glyphosate exposure Mm -hmm. that, um, you know, the wheat that we have here in America is just so heavily dosed in glyphosate that it just sort of triggers and makes that epigenetic flip from off to on in celiac. And a lot of people think that celiac is like the gateway autoimmune disease that then leads to all other autoimmune diseases, MS and and everything else. And that gluten, the protein in wheat is one of the main drivers behind a lot of autoimmune diseases. Uh, So that's, that's one thought. Um, other viruses can, can sometimes flip it on too. Um, I've heard that MS there's theories or even I know adult onset type one diabetes is sometimes they think that it's a virus that makes that turn on. But what we've seen, what I've seen a lot in my practice is when we pull people off industrial food and get them eating real food, pulling out a lot of the grains and just focusing on 
a diet that is less inflammatory and more, you know, nutrient dense, mm. the body can stop attacking itself mm. and um, just start healing again. So, you know, some people can tolerate a little bit of gluten. Other people, it's completely no gluten, um, no dairy. Um, for some people that are carnivore, it's completely no no plants at all. And mm. and I think that. Um, that should be considered as a, as a therapeutic tool as well. I don't recommend it as like a cool way to lose weight or, um, you know, for a healthy person just to like, just for fun. But I have seen some amazing case studies of people who are extremely sick, completely mm. reverse their health conditions by pulling out all plants altogether. So I think there's just different extremes of everything and where, um, celiac is pretty extreme. I, I have a very limited amount of food that, that I can eat. You know, some people you see in the grocery store who are still thin, who can eat what seemingly whatever they want, you know, it, they just kind of like won the genetic lottery. They're a little bit more <laughs> than, than me, you know, but I feel so grateful. You know, when I talk to people who maybe have type two diabetes or an autoimmune disease, and I'm talking to them the first time about, what they need to pull out of their diet in order to, you know, recover their health, especially type two diabetes, because it's, yeah. it's so easy to reverse type two diabetes. Right. But it's, Great. it's driven by basically an allergy to sugar. Right. Mm. I mean, that's kind of what it is. And that's what I try to explain to them is that it, this is, this is not a bad thing. It's actually a gift that you're learning how to save yourself. Yeah that, you know, so instead of feeling sorry for yourself that you can't eat the pizza, <laughs> feel grateful that you found out that you can't eat pizza and that's mm. going to save you. Right. Um, so just kind of flipping it on its head a little bit and, um, looking at it in a different way, I, I love think that. can be helpful for some mm. people. Analogy to sugar. Mm. I, love, I, mm. I, I absolutely love that. That's great. I guess the other thing I'd like you to dive into is because so often when we talk about diet, people are, are concerned about the visual side of it, right? You know, weight. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, um, I, I guess the other thing that I, I'd like to get your opinion on is is the impact on our cognitive ability and our behaviour. I know that there's been mm. research done like in correctional facilities in the US about having different types of diets and seeing different outcomes in, in the amount of violence that's mm. experienced. Um, I, I'd love to get your insights into that. Well, one study that I like to cite a lot in the book is actually out of Kenya with school children. Um, who were food insecure. And it was the only RCT I know of that looked at meat in children versus less meat. Like what happens when kids who are food insecure actually get a little bit more meat. And it, because I get really nervous when I hear parents saying that they're going to feed their kids a vegan diet. I think, mm. um, you know, whatever with an adult, but when we're talking about kids, mm. I get as a mom and uh, a dietitian, I get very, very nervous about that. Mm. And so, um, again, the only study that we know of, it gave one group an extra meat supplement basically. And that group performed better cognitively, behaviorally, and physically compared to the dairy group and the group that was just overfed calories. And so, and there's a lot of programs out there that are just trying to get milk out, you know, like they, mm. they think that, you know, just adding a little milk to this, to a vegetarian school lunch for poor kids is like the way to go. Mm. And, um, unfortunately dairy can actually inhibit iron absorption. And so that's really dangerous because, uh, we know that stunting is, a, a really huge problem in a lot of the developing countries. And when kids get more meat, 
they do better in school, they have better behavior and it's better for their GDP Hmm. to just, you know, make sure that these kids are actually well-nourished as they're growing up. And so, um, so policies that are worldwide saying everyone needs to eat less meat. And I I think it's unethical. Well, and what about say conventional dietitians or nutritionists and and their learnings is sometimes the complete opposite to all well, you know their, their standard food pyramid because when I was a professional athlete playing a contact sport and we had a conventional nutritionist back in our day and they said to me for my genetic makeup you're blessed you can eat whatever you want you can hydrate on orange juice or lemonade if you wanted so when a young 20 year old hears that that's what I was doing I was eating whatever I wanted hydrating on whatever, alcohol, it was just, it all went downhill <laughs> yeah, six years after, you know, it all come crashing down for four years. But the conventional model is almost the complete opposite. Yeah, it's really unfortunate. Um, it's interesting how a lot of people don't know this, but um, dietetics, the profession bloomed out of the Seventh-day Adventist church. Mm. So the first dietitian was a Seventh Day Adventist, uh, which is a, you know, they believe that eating meat is uh, sinful and, yeah. and gives you lust, lust, uh, you know, and so it's um, the only way to control that is to remove meat and alcohol and you know spicy things from the diet and make it a bland plant-based diet um and i their their philosophy has is still present in a lot of the ways we're looking at things um even today so um there was a position paper by the academy of nutrition in america um, on vegetarian and vegan diets and every single author on that position paper was either a vegetarian or, or a religious vegetarian. And that needs to be disclosed. We, we, need to, we need to be pulling bias out of these things and really look at the science and the evidence. And mm. there's nutrition science, as you mentioned earlier, is not really very good. Mm. Um, it's really hard to look at an overall diet of someone. And actually, it's impossible to look at an overall diet of someone and pinpoint one specific food to say that caused the cancer. So when we're looking at these big studies, actually, there was a really big one that came out of Australia um, that was a big, I think it was a meta-analysis of a whole bunch of studies that looked at vegetarian versus omnivore diets. Mm. And when they adjusted for all the confounding factors, so for lifestyle, smoking, exercise, all, all these things, they found absolutely no difference in longevity at all. No benefit to mm. reducing meat consumption or eliminating meat. Have you found now that the learnings or the teachings in university is changing to no, no, it's still <laughs> <laughs> absolutely not. Um, I found that uh, some of them are st- actually I so I, I went and I interviewed with Walter Willett at Harvard. And so he is like Mr. USDA dietary guidelines. He's the author of the Eat Lancet paper. And I actually have him in my film. Um saying, you know, farmers have known for thousands of years that if you want to fatten up an animal, Mm. you 
put them in a uh, confined space where they can't move around and you feed them lots of grains. And humans are like that too. (laughs) I can't believe he said that, but he did say that. And I have him in the film saying that. Oh, no way. That's great. (laughs) He doesn't know. He signed a release and everything. He doesn't even know he's in the film. Yeah, right. (laughs) (laughs) But when I was at Harvard and I was sort of like snooping around in the halls at uh, Harvard School of Public Health at where his office is, um, I did see some papers on keto. Um, but it was plant-based keto, yeah, right? right? So meat's still bad, yeah. but maybe keto's good, but it has to be plant-based keto, yeah, right? Mm. Um, so I, I, I guess maybe keto is something that is, you know, some people are starting to look at. Uh, Sarah Hallberg is a doctor uh, here in the U.S. that did do a paper on uh, reversing type 2 diabetes with a ketogenic diet. And, you know, had, had a lot of success in her clinic. And I've been to her clinic. I've, I've interviewed patients of hers. Uh, but as far as the meat goes, you know, meat. So the fear of fat is really dissipating, I think, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, in nutrition circles. But meat is worse in mm. our minds than fat ever could be. Because not only is meat going to kill you, but it's also killing beautiful animals and destroying the planet at the same time, right? It's this perfect Mm. trifecta of evil. And so you have to be able to not only address nutrition, but also environment and ethics if you want to have a well-rounded argument against somebody who's pushing for um, a, a lower meat diet. And nobody is thinking in all of these camps. Everyone's so siloed, right? So you have the environmentalists. I, even here in the U.S., people that supported my film, there's a lot of people here that will support cattle for grazing, but still we need to all be eating less meat, of course. And and then you have a lot of nutrition experts that are only concerned about nutrition and uh, whatever with the environment, right? And so it's uh, it can be hard to bring all these camps together. What about the, the big monocrops, <laughs> the big monocrops <laughs> that, you know, are killing insects and rodents yeah. and, and much far greater animals than just a normal regenerative beef farm as well, which people don't even think about, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which is interesting. Yes, and yeah. so when you look at a regenerative farm that's actually increasing life, right? It's, mm. it's bringing more soil health, which increases biodiversity underground and above ground. It can provide habitat for birds mm. and all kinds of critters. You know, when you look at a system like that and consider that one cow with steer can provide almost 500 pounds of meat. I don't know what that is in kilograms. That's half. Okay. And uh, compare that to the number of lives that are destroyed in a typical industrial plant-based system where you're destroying an entire ecosystem just to make way for the field that you need, right? So you're Mm. either, you have to like till up a prairie or a grassland or a fort, you have to cut down a fort, right? So anything that was naturally living there now has to die or displace, you know, move somewhere else, right? Mm. And crowd out yep. in their new home when, mm-hmm. you know, the other people, the other animals. Um, but then you're, you're, you're killing, so you're releasing tons of carbon um, and killing more stuff. You're squashing little bunnies yeah. and, 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 and mice and everything. And then all the chemicals that you need, the pesticides, mm-hmm. insecticides, uh, getting into waterways, killing the fish, 
killing uh, the birds that need to eat the insects, killing the bears that need to eat the fish. Mm. I mean, the creating massive dead zones um, in the Gulf of Mexico and, and everywhere else. Um, you know, th- those are the two options. And I, I think that um, the life of one cow that can feed a family for mm. a year is certainly, you know, out of a regenerative ag system, a, a much better way to go than uh, the industrial plant-based system. So, Diana, can I ask a massive favour? I need yes. you to, because the cynic in me is just going, feed me. Mm-hmm. So are we talking about like big ag and their connection to making short-term, well, let's just call it money, straight away uh-huh. out of, you know, soy, grain, and then the herbicides and pesticides and the association between those two industries, are they just screening people out to the awareness that we need to to adopt in this type of... Oh, yeah. I mean, regenerative agriculture is not good for the fossil fuel industry. Eating less meat distracts us from the real problems, which is ultra-processed food and fossil fuels and consumerism and materialism and all the evils of the world, right? So Mm. it's so much easier to pin it on a cow. Uh, I have a whole chapter actually in the book called Meat as Scapegoat, and we actually almost named the book Scapegoat. But that's what cattle have become. Like it's so much easier to pick one villain than it's just easier for the human brain to do that rather than to really look at entire systems and understand that we have massively screwed up and it's, it's going to be incredibly complicated to fix it. And so, you know, why not just eat less meat? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a perfect campaign. I think even in, in government, like the health sector and agriculture sector, they're all completely separate. It, it, they should be very well connected to create a good ecosystem like you were saying. It's a, even in Australia it's the same, which mm-hmm. is, um, mm-hmm. which is you know, worrying for the future, you know what I mean? Well, we need to do something. Yeah, I mean, it's, it makes so much sense to me and I, I feel very like I'm the only one and I've got this little tiny microphone that's like muted, right, and I just want to be screaming all of this all the time and everybody is just, you know, floating down this river of eat less meat and I'm the only one, you know, that's like trying to like, stop, stop, you know, please think about this differently. Um, so I'm hoping that the film makes a, some level of impact um, at the policy level to try to um, encourage farmers and consumers and governments to, um, you know, increase support for regenerative agriculture. And what we're going to have listening here, Diana, is consumers. And a lot mm-hmm. of us, I guess, are city dwellers. Well, Anthony's a city dweller. I'm a, I'm a fringe city dweller. Yeah, and, and it'd be nice to be able to, you know, be on a property like yourself and, and, and you know, take up ethical farming. But what, what can we do as consumers to support this approach? What are the uh-huh. things? Because I can't make a farm. If you saw me try to do a farm, you'd be you'd, you'd just go, Matt, Matt, <laughs> just go inside. <laughs> um, it, you know, it's really funny because in the book we actually have a big list of what you can do, and there's lots of things. And actually, even we listed things to just ha- be a more sustainable human in general, a better contributor to society. And this was written pre-COVID. But now, you know, I even sent a list to Rob, my co-author, saying, like, look what we wrote. Like, after, uh, you know, all the lockdowns happened, which are still happening here in the U.S., 
it still makes a lot of sense, like all the things that we wrote. So we, we included things like don't be unhealthy, um, mm. take care of your body. So you're not a burden on the yeah. healthcare system. Um, make sure you have some savings so that, um, and don't just spend all your money. Like mm. we wrote about that in a book about cows, right? Because we're, we're trying to, <laughs> did you hear that? Pay attention it. to Diana. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, sorry, I digress. <laughs> um, but then on the farming side and the purchasing side, right, definitely mm. try to, you know, buy the best meat you can afford directly from a farmer if you can, because avoiding the middlemen buying directly from the farmer actually makes more money land mm. in the farmer's pocket, which is more jobs for rural communities. I mean, in America, we have lost our rural communities because of industrial farming. So in towns, you drive around and all the small towns are all boarded up because everyone's just buying everything from these big box uh, stores yeah. and not local small far, uh, businesses and, and farms anymore. Right. And it's now every town looks exactly the same. Um, there's the same, you know, big stores, you know, controlling everything, Amazon controlling everything, all purchasing. And so I'm a huge believer in just supporting your, the little guy and, and more regional food systems. I mean, I think there's, we have to scale this in order to um, make as big an impact as we can. And so, you know, there's a lot of purists out there that uh, get frustrated with me when I work with industry, like larger companies that are trying to make even a small shift for a large company is going to be a big deal. You know, like if we can get McDonald's to uh, have a small percentage of their burgers grass fed, yeah. that's going to be a massive, massive win for everybody. And it doesn't have to be, you know, only bicycle to your local small farmer and, you know, a hundred percent regenerative only like mm. we can all do a little bit better. Um, I think, uh, you know, Guys who are strong can go volunteer on farms and dig post mm. holes. And there's an actual farmer's carry, <laughs> uh, you know, like yep. <laughs> instead of I used to go to CrossFit and do these farmer carries, yeah, you know, yeah, where you're like tough. walking around with kettlebells. <laughs> but that's a legit actual chore on a real yes, farm. Yeah, right. It. And so we've hosted CrossFit, you know, workouts at the farm and, you know, love volunteers on the farm that are fit guys. Um, yeah. or if you're really good at computers, make a website for your farmer, like mm. offer to help in any way you can, because they need it. Um, they're not always the best marketers of their own products. Uh, so I try to help with that, with some of the infographics that I, that I have. So I think there's, there's a way that all of us can, can do better supporting local yeah. farmers. That's some great initiatives there. So, if, and if we merge the COVID or the pandemic conversation in, Obviously, eating this way also impacts your immune system positively. Right, exactly. And um, I can tell you my nutrition practice is so busy now because mm. everyone has gained weight with constant access to their refrigerator yeah. and boredom <laughs> yeah. and making bad choices because, you know, when people are scared, they eat a lot of comfort food. And mm. so um, we've just seen this, you know, people are home baking all the time. It's like the worst thing you could be doing is, mm. I mean, if I, if I want a treat, I'm not going to bake 12 of them and have them sitting in front of me <laughs> for three days. Right. Um, I'll yeah. just go out and get a little bit of ice cream and be done with it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so if you are metabolically more healthy, you're much less likely to have a severe reaction from coronavirus. We've seen that. Mm. And actually it's even affected agriculture. Like I know in Europe, 
France was calling on the unemployed, uh, like software workers to go work in the fields because they couldn't, they, they were having problems with labor. You know, they couldn't get the labor to harvest the asparagus. The asparagus was, mm. you know, growing out of control. So it's I exactly think if someone same, doesn't yeah. have a job right now, you know, a lot of people are in the U S are, I mean, the labor force is, mm. is pretty bad here, but farms, the vegetables are still growing and the animals still need to be fed. Mm. And if you're somebody who can work on a farm, go volunteer on a farm for a while and get out of your house and stop yeah. making cookies. Get outdoors. That's it. it. It's the same here, you know, Diana, because a lot of the workforce that we have on farms are normally backpackers Yeah, that come from overseas. Uh-huh. And obviously there's no backpackers here at the moment <laughs> because there's no one right. from overseas. Mm. So there's a lot of work op- opportunities in the country areas, harvesting and picking fruit and veggies. Mm-hmm. What was it like, you know, writing a book with Rob Wolf and, and doing the movie with him? Uh, what was it like to write a book with <laughs> Rob Wolf? Annoying. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and he will admit that too. So it, this yeah. is nothing I wouldn't say directly to Rob. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. He's, he's one of my best friends. It's fine. Yeah, he's um, awesome. Uh, so the film, um, so the book I co-wrote with him, but the film, um, he's the executive producer, which means he was not involved in the day to day, but he's more yep. helping just, you know, helping me with the fundraising because it's yep. not cheap to mm. make a film. And um, we had to crowdsource all of the money. And so it, that was a lot of work. So I became the producer and director. So uh, the director is the one who hires the camera crew and (laughs) writes the questions and does the interviews. But then the producer is the one who books the flights and uh, figures out where we're going to have lunch and, (laughs) you know, manages everything. So like is the mom, right. Of the, of the production. And so I was both those things Mm. and the chief fundraiser for, for all the money and and everything. So it sucked my life force out of me, Mm. this movie. Uh, last year, 2019, I traveled every other week, pretty much. I would be home for a week traveling home. And as someone who's highly sensitive to gluten, Mm. it's not easy to stay healthy. And, uh, and I need a lot of sleep and that's, that gets interrupted when there's crazy time zones. And, you know, we were in Europe a few times and and everything. So, and the days are long. Yeah. Mm. I know it sounds so romantic, but it is, (laughs) you know, 6am to 11pm kind of days. And then you're up the next morning at six again, um, on no food kind of thing. Mm. Um, because I'm not a great producer and I would just, (laughs) you know, um, but so I'm so glad the film's done. And I'm never doing another film again. Yeah, yeah. This is it. This is when can you know. we see it? <laughs> uh, so <laughs> the film is completely done. I am releasing it to the people who um, pre-ordered the book or supported me through my crowdfunder very soon. Just working on the technology. Actually, I have a guy in Australia that's that's building my um, membership portal and doing all my email. I don't even know all the technology. Is a lot of behind the scenes work yeah. in order to make that work properly. And then, so that'll be sort of our test run of this tech platform. And then, um, we are going to be in the fall releasing it for one week for free on my website, sacredcow.info. Um, and it's going to be one week only. And so people can sign up for my newsletter at sacredcow.info to get updates on how they can see the film for free. And after that, uh, we're going to pull it back again and then release it on the mainstream platforms. It'll probably go out in like February or January, February to, you know, more of the mainstream, you know, where you can 
just download it and for a small fee or something like that. So, yeah. So if, if folks are interested in this and also the book is a great primer, uh, if they yeah. get it soon, they can read it before the film. Um, and the film is just a really great sort of, there's animations and illustrations that, that really help you understand a lot of the big picture ideas in the book. Can I ask when you finished the filming and being a producer and the director? Thank God before coronavirus. Okay. Um, So we finished my last shoot. Well, my last big shoot was was Mexico um, and that was last October. Mm. Um, And then I think I did just a couple more interviews. Like we realized we needed someone to talk about this, you know. Mm. So basically I did the film kind of in a backwards way where I shot everything and then I built a film um, because we weren't really sure exactly how to tell the story. It's a lot. Do we make this a docuseries? Like how do we even approach this? And so, uh, so I hired a writer that basically went through every single interview and every single shoot I did. Mm. And she wrote the film. Uh, she was magic. Uh, and she's very highly experienced in, in documentary mm. writing and she saved the day in one month. She went from not even having heard the word ruminant before she had to look it up yeah. to completely writing the film and wrapping her head around this entire argument, nutrition, environment, ethics, understanding, you know, all these, I had in total 30 interviews that were over one hour long. Um, not all of them made it into the film, but I mean, there was just so much that she had to do. So she's actually the writer. Callie is, is the hero of the project. Well, I'm going to make an expert observation, Diana, for you from wherever a thousand miles away we mm-hmm. are, is that if you were exhausted after the, uh, the pro- project, your energy's back. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> it's well and truly back. <laughs> so, well, I'm yeah. really happy that it's done yeah. um, and, and that I don't have to be. <laughs> uh, although I'm really sad that all the travel got cancelled um, because – I was invited mm. to so many different countries to screen it and everything. So when COVID opens back up again, um, I hope that I can make <laughs> it to Australia to, to do some screenings. That'll be wonderful. Yeah. So we normally finish off with our last question for guests as well. And that's yep. what are your two or three things in your game plan for a healthy life? Like long-term? Yeah. Just, life. Yeah. What do you have in your kit bag that okay. you normally um, utilise? I eat a really high protein diet and I figured out for me that that's the way I need to eat. So I eat, um, a lot of meat actually. I have learned to be completely unapologetic about my need for a lot of sleep. And so I go to sleep before my, my kids a lot of times, I have two teenagers (laughs) and I'm like, okay guys, check it out. 9.30, gotta go. (laughs) You know? Uh, yeah, I think just, um, getting light exposure and just Mm. making sure that I'm outside every morning as, as much as I can be, even if I don't feel like it and walking outside, um, as much as I can. Great. Excellent. Now just share with the listeners, where can we find you again? And uh-huh. um, I'm most active on social media on Instagram. Um, and my handle on Instagram is sustainable dish. And so um, I post there pretty much every day and then I'll put things in my stories too. And then I have a clinical practice. I, I've worked with people in Australia before as uh, helping them with their health. And so that's at sustainabledish.com. That's more of my nutrition end. Yep. Um, and I'm starting, I, I didn't take clients for a very long time while I was working on this because it was just too much, but I am now taking people. And and then sacredcow.info is where information on the book and uh, the film. And then we have a blog there that's more environmental based. And yep. so we're posting 
about cows, the environment, but also the impact on, um, uh, I'm very, very interested in the impact of animal source foods on, on people that need it most, Mm. um, women and children, especially in developing countries. And so I'm hoping to do more, more work on that, um, moving forward. You've got an outstanding podcast as well. Yes. Oh, thank you. Yes, I have a podcast called Sustainable Dish. Yeah. yeah and actually, podcast. I have some really, really great episodes that I'm really excited about that are coming up really soon. I, I had taken a break personally from being the one to run the podcast just when I was underwater mm-hmm. with the film. But n- now that I have energy to put <laughs> back into the podcast, I've got just the most amazing guests. Well, Diana, you've been a wealth of knowledge. It's been fantastic uh, getting your insights into uh, your views and we can't wait for the movie. We really appreciate you joining us on the Change Room podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to the Change Room podcast, a whiff of well-being with Minnie and Matt. For more information about the Change Room, please head to thechangeroom.info.